We are here for Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus. This is increment 138. And we are going to Hebrews 5.11 to recap and then going to take a foray into the notorious Hebrews chapter 6 today and possibly in our next increment. So we will <coughs> begin with prayer and we'll be going to Hebrews 5.11 to start with. We'll begin with prayer. <clears throat> Father, may your grace be with our spirit as I communicate this word today and as all of us receive it for your glory and for your honor. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11, our translation reads like this. We have a lot to say about this. And what he's speaking of here is the oath fortified oracle. That's what I choose to call Psalm 110.4, which is the Septuagint, or the Greek text, 109.4. For the Lord swore and will not retract it, you are priest forever like Melchizedek. And that was the subject in 5.10. <clears throat> in this paragraph, the PT says, we have a lot to say about this. Oath fortified oracle. But then he says, but it's hard to articulate. It's hard for me as a teacher, he says, in, to articulate in such a way as to make it intelligible to you since you've become sluggish in listening. They had a kind of power failure on the lowest level of consciousness, which is on the level of attentiveness. They were inattentive. They had become inattentive, and there's lots of reasons why that can happen in a believer's life. And in verse 12, for although because of the time that has elapsed, that means that these people had been on the road, they had believed in Jesus Christ decades before this homily came to them. So he says, for although because of the time that has elapsed, <clears throat> you should be teachers. Instead, you have need again that someone teaches you the elementary sayings of God. Now, what I think is going to be an interpretive key for us here is if we understand this word usually translated as elementary teachings or elementary sayings of God, that we translate elementary as anticipative, anticipative. Not elementary in the sense of basic, but anticipative in the sense of not fulfilled. He's referring, and this is going to be a key word, I think, in our interpretation. In fact, I think that this is a, an interpretive key to this passage. So he says, you have need again that someone teaches you the anticipative sayings of God. You've come to be in need of milk not solid food. This is an analogy that's used both in Jewish and Hellenistic educational systems, milk being elementary and 
baby food, we could say, not solid food. Solid food being advanced doctrine. In this case, the doctrine of completion, the doctrine of fulfillment, the doctrine that's not anticipating but announcing a fulfillment. Then he says in verse 13, Now everyone who partakes of milk is unskilled in the message about righteousness. Now I think the message about righteousness, in my view, is the epistle of Romans, especially the first eight chapters. Everyone who partakes of milk is unskilled in the message about righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature. That's another catch word and key word in Hebrews. It's teleon, T-E-L-E-I-O-N. Every time I see a word like this, I'm glad we named the church to Telestai because that comes from the Greek word teleo, which is related to teleao, which is related to completion. And so he says solid food is for the mature or the complete whose senses, senses here is the first way of being conscious where psychic conversions transpire. And so we have basic attentiveness and basic way of being conscious here are both spoken of. That's where the adjustment needs to happen. Solid food is for the mature whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. The good he's speaking about here has to do with values. The evil has to do with evanescent personal satisfactions that are chosen over eternal values. What's at stake here is that they're going to choose the temporal satisfaction and evanescent personal satisfaction of no longer being shamed by their contemporaries if they go back to the temple sacrifices and their old loyalties under the old priesthood. And that's in contrast to values, choosing the eternal value of going on to the word of completion and going on in continued loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom this writer is telling them is, in fact, a great archpriest like Melchizedek, the archpriest of that oath-fortified oracle. Now, the PT, like Moses before Israel, presents his hearers with a choice between death and life, blessing and cursing. And, of course, he urges, as Moses did, in fact, mandates without alternatives, really, that they choose life. Deuteronomy 30, 19 to 20, I set before you life and death and blessing and cursing. Choose life. There's no alternative to choosing life, at least none that is sane, none that is even really thinkable. He makes the alternative unthinkable. And the, the PT is doing the same thing as he goes into Hebrews chapter 6. He's making the alternative to a further advance onto completion or maturity or whatever one chooses to call it. The alternative to doing so is unthinkable. So by so doing, he effectively slams the door 
on their return, if I may use the imagery, their return to Egypt, if we may go back to the desert generation. He closes the door on their return to Egypt. Now John, the writer in Revelation, has likened apostate Jerusalem in that time to Sodom and Egypt. And he says that's where they crucified our Lord in Revelation 11.7. And so when I use this term return to Egypt, we're using it in terms of returning to the present Jerusalem or what Paul called the Jerusalem that is now and the apostate system of Jerusalem or the abrogated system of priesthood and sacrifices. For the hearers of the Hebrews' homily to return to their former loyalties after making a break from them through insights they had received, that would be in effect aligning with those who crucified the Lord. By so doing, they, as we're going to learn in Hebrews 6, 4 and following, by doing so, they would be effectively crucifying to themselves the Son of God all over again. They'd be putting him to a public shame, a public and open shame, because their former loyalties would require public attendance in the synagogues. They would require public offering of temple sacrifices and the public celebration of feasts, all of which would be tantamount to a public rejection of Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, was, in fact, crucified publicly. The Lord of glory, crucified publicly. When Paul preached the gospel later on in Acts, he said these things weren't done in a corner. They weren't done in secret. There was a public execution of the Lord. Likewise, these readers or hearers of this homily called Hebrews also made a confession of him publicly. So their rejection of him would also have ultimately to be public, like the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If they rejected him and went on to return to the former loyalties of offering animal sacrifices in order to gain or regain the favor of their contemporaries, they would in effect be crucifying to themselves the Lord all over again. The PT makes the alternative, therefore, to being brought to completion so nearly unthinkable that it would be nearly impossible for them to even consider it. He's an effective pastor teacher. He is effectively slamming the door on their choice for death. Jesus had said to his opponents in John 8:21. And this is, I think, one of the most important things we could consider about John's gospel. To his opponents in John 8, 21, Jesus said, I'm going away, and you'll seek me, and you will die on account of your sin. Sin in the Johannine context being unbelief in John 16, 9. He goes on to say, where I'm going, you can't come. His opponents, those who were seeking to kill him, according to 
John 5.18 and John 8.44, his opponents said, he's not going to commit suicide, is he? Since he says, where I'm going, you can't come. They had an intuition that he meant he was going somewhere that involved his death. John 8.22. To that, Jesus replied, you're from below, basically announcing that they are from the Jerusalem that is below. I'm from above, that is the Jerusalem from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world, John 8.23. So by going away, Jesus meant that he was going to his father by way of the cross, by way of resurrection and ascension, of course, and passage through the heavens. He was going to the heavenly holy of holies, as we know from Hebrews, in the tabernacle in heaven. And then he was going to sit at the right side of his father in the heights as the son of man. The one prophesied in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, prophesied and envisioned. They couldn't go there. In fact, they would indeed seek him, Jesus said, meaning that they would go to the temple in 70 AD because they would be there to seek Yahweh, whom Jesus is. But they will die on account of their sin. Even as they seek Yahweh, they will die in their sin because their sin is unbelief. Because they will not have believed that Jesus is Yahweh. So they will go to seek for Yahweh, whom they had actually rejected in Jerusalem. And they will die on account of their unbelief because they will be killed by the abomination that makes desolate, the Roman armies and their legions and their allies who were destined to destroy Jerusalem and burn the temple. So because they didn't believe that Jesus is Yahweh and that he is the Son of Man and the Son of God, that would be their fate, barring, of course, their faith. Jesus was predicting the A.D. 70 conflagration and destruction of the temple in which countless of his countrymen would die because of their unbelief. They would go to the temple below, meaning the temple in Jerusalem, the earthly tabernacle of this world in Hebrews 9.11, rather than that of the heavens where the throne of grace and the real mercy seat is. They would die by the abomination of desolation. Again, a Daniel reference, Matthew 24:15. The armies of Rome and their allies who would besiege the city, kill thousands of Jews, and dispose of their bodies in a place called Gehenna. The Valley of Hinnom, or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, on the south side of Jerusalem, where the fires never die, because there, it's a constant crematory, as it were, and the worms or the fires are never quenched, rather, and the worms never die because they're always doing the work of disposing of corpses. Now, this enriches our understanding of the PT's warning against his readers departing from the living God with what? An evil heart of unbelief in Hebrews 3.12. For they would be taking the same path as the opponents of Jesus in John 8. 
and they would die on account of their sin of unbelief. Now, they had already believed, so the warning for them is that they would die because they would be failing to trust the faithfulness of God to take care of them outside of the encampment, outside of Jerusalem. So they'd go back under fear and under a fear of being ashamed by their contemporaries, and they would experience the same fate as their unbelieving brethren. Now, it's very interesting that according to history, it doesn't seem that there were any believers left in Jerusalem when the abomination of desolation came in. And so they had evidently heeded the many, arg the many warnings that were given in places like Hebrews and in Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 19, Luke 21, etc. <clears throat> so if they took the unthinkable alternative, their fate would be similar to that of the Exodus generation who perished in the desert. They would be choosing death rather than life and a curse, as we're going to see in Hebrews 6, 8, rather than the blessedness of completion, Hebrews 6, 1 and Hebrews 10, 36. So the passage before us, and I'm going to take a foray into it, in fact, really scan the whole of Hebrews 6, 1 through 12 in the next couple of increments, I hope before we go back and run the iron over the cloth another time. But the passage before us, Hebrews 6, 1 to 8, has proven to be very challenging to interpreters throughout the centuries. <clears throat> Many came to the conclusion that the writer was agreeing with certain Jewish writers and expositors of the scripture, like Philo, for example, and even like some Greek philosophers, like Plato, who believed that a sin could be committed or an error committed for which there was no forgiveness and no possibility of being restored. The PT, however, is focused even in his dire warnings on the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. He bases the impossibility of renewal and restoration not on the egregiousness of a particular sin, not even apostasy, as heinous as that capital sin is, but on the fact that there is no possibility of renewal or restoration to repentance after sin except for the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. And that renewal and restoration could not be found in the old system of animal sacrifices as those offered in the desert tabernacle or those offered in the temple in the Jerusalem from below, or the Jerusalem of this world, this earth. For as the PT will make eminently clear later on, none of these animal sacrifices could ever take away sin, and none could cause a decisive purgation of the conscience, a purging of the conscience from dead works and guilt. So those who interpret Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 to be speaking about the absolute impossibility of restoration seriously underestimate the greatness of God's mercy and misunderstand 
the once and for all impact of the cross of Christ in its universal application as well as its eternal application. So what can be said, however, is that the PT is making the alternative to going on to completion as repulsive as possible. The alternative is revealed to be as repulsive and even frightening as possible. As if anticipating misinterpretations of his words, however, in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, the PT actually explains that he's not speaking of the loss of salvation, that is, the loss of eternal or age-abiding salvation, even though he spoke rhetorically in such a way as to throw a scare into them, and he does for sure. Hebrews 6, 9 really kind of clears the matter up when he talks about, when you're talking about the things that belong to salvation, he said, you can't assume anyone would not be able to be restored again. He wasn't speaking merely hypothetically on the other hand, though. Lots of people like to not do the work here and kind of skirt around the issue by saying he was only speaking hypothetically. No, he wasn't speaking merely hypothetically on the one hand, nor was he threatening his readers with eternal damnation if they defected on the other hand. He was, however, warning of the dire consequences of apostasy. And he framed those consequences in a rhetorical manner that depicts them as being dire and indeed. Dire and desperate indeed. As I said, he's making it extremely unattractive to them to choose to return to Egypt, if I may continue with that analogy or that metaphor. To use the language of the Godfather, he's making them an offer that they can't refuse. He's serious about the deadly consequences of apostasy, withdrawing from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief. But he makes it clear that he's not thinking of his readers in those terms. He makes that clear not only in Hebrews 6, 9, and 10, but he makes it clear in Hebrews 10, 38, and 39 after the severe warning in 10, 26 to 31. So in all of these warnings, it's necessary to deploy the TFS, the Theological Functional Specialty of History, and bring in the AD 70 trajectory again that's so prevalent in the New Testament. The stark warnings actually have to do with an upcoming historical disaster that these readers will escape if they pay heed to this homily and realize that not only is Jerusalem not a perpetually continuing city, which was the myth at the time, but it's a city that's slated for destruction, along with the evanescent Old Covenant, the animal sacrifices, and the whole system of the Aaronic priesthood, which is symbolized by the Lord's changing of the heavens like a garment, in Hebrews 1.10 to 12. As Jesus used language in which he deployed the word Gehenna, sadly translated as hell in some translations, for the historical judgment of A.D. 70, 
And as his words were distorted, as we know, into a dogma of hell as an eternal post-mortem place of horrific, unending punishment, as people therefore distorted Jesus' words from the AD 70 trajectory. So the rhetorical method deployed by the PT in Hebrews, in which he describes apostasy in the most frightful possible terms, his words have too have also been misinterpreted by those who are already convinced that someone can lose their eternal salvation and go to an everlasting blast furnace for their apostasy. In other words, they have a narrative already in place that involves an eternal place of post-mortem punishment, so they almost, they attract like a magnet a lot of scriptures to that narrative rather than really do the work of exposition and exegesis. That's what we're going to do starting right now. So let's examine what I call the notorious section of Hebrews, which is Hebrews 6. Only notorious because of its misinterpretation and because of the fear that it has instigated in many people because of that false interpretation. The first word is therefore. Now, that word is an inferential conjunction deal. You'll see these things in print, so hopefully by the ear gate and the eye gate you'll get some kind of a comprehension here or apprehension of what's being said. The word is dio, D-I-O, and it does mean therefore. I think therefore is probably the best translation for it because it introduces an inference from what has been said or written previously. And we're speaking specifically of the whole epistle up to this point, but specifically of passages like in Hebrews 3.7 and 3.10 where he used the word dio also. He wrote, therefore, after saying that we prove ourselves to be God's house over which the Son of God is faithful, if we only hold fast the boldness and the boast of our hope in 3.6 of Hebrews. So as we've seen many, many times before, Hebrews 3, 7 to 11 reads like this. Therefore, Dio, again, as the Holy Spirit is saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the embitterment that led to revolt during the day of testing in the desert, where your ancestors tested me, put me to the proof, even as they were seeing my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked by this generation and said, they're always led astray in heart and they have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath if they enter into my rest, meaning they will not enter my rest. And then, of course, that segues into Hebrews 3.12. Watch out, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief that withdraws from the living God. So here, as there, he's warning against the sin, the same sin, unbelief. Throughout this homily, he does so. And he will use Dio six more times after Hebrews 6.1 in order to keep advancing his exhortation. In fact, this string of Dio's 
helps us discern an arc of coherence in the discourse, it being a strong impartation of incentive for forward spiritual progress by grace. So therefore, in Hebrews 6.1, makes an inference from 5.11 to 14, a more close or immediate inference, especially verse 14, where the PT says that solid food is for the mature, teleon, whose senses, and senses here means the first way of being conscious, where psychic conversions transpire. The senses have been trained to distinguish between good, that means values, and evil, that is, evanescent personal satisfaction chosen over eternal values. So to paraphrase, therefore, that is, consequently, if you want good rather than evil, if you want values over satisfactions, then come on. Let's be brought to completion rather than regressing into infancy again. So following Dio, therefore, Hebrews 6, we have leaving. Leaving is a very strong verb here. It's a very strong use of the verb, A-P-H-E-N-T-E-S, aphentes, and that word is an aorist passive or aorist active participial form of the verb afiemi, which again, you'll see this in print. I'm not going to write it all up here. But afiemi is variously trans translated in the scriptures. Sometimes it can actually mean forgive. God is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins, afiemi. So afiemi is variously translated, and it depends on the context. It has meanings from cancel, pardon, or forgive with regard to sins, all the way to the meaning of abandon. Now, that's where we're getting close to its meaning here in Hebrews 6.1. And it means it can mean to divorce, to let go, or to send away. And in some contexts like this one, it means to abandon. So it's very strong, forsake, leave behind. It is similarly utilized and this is where I think there is a remarkable possibility for an insight. And this is where I get actually staggered in my study, and I live in a constant mild state of astonishment. Sometimes the mildness gets a little bit wilder. But it seems utilized, this, this word, afiemi, is similarly utilized to mean abandonment in Jesus' oracle to Jerusalem. And this is an, a critical passage of Scripture that ought to be attended upon by all believers who are serious about Bible instruction and about eschatology. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 38, to Jerusalem, mind you, your house, meaning the temple, is being abandoned and left to you empty. Desolate means without a divine resident. God's going to leave that stone temple. This oracle was followed by Jesus' prophetic prediction in Matthew 23, 39. Thank God. Thank God. Because he follows it up by selling, saying to them, I'm telling you that you won't see me again until you say, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what many said when he was coming into Jerusalem and they threw palms in front of him. But this will be said even by apostate Jerusalem in the eschatological future and has been said by many people throughout this age. This prophetic prediction, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is actually a recognition that Jesus Christ has the name of Yahweh and is Yahweh. Now in Luke 19.38, and I never saw this really in this connection until yesterday, it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It makes sense of us being led to call this the year of the great king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But in any case, this prophetic prediction, which is in line with the apocatastasis pantone, the restoration of all things, was then followed by a special speech act, speech hyphen act, which is a significant symbolic but real action performed by Jesus to illustrate something. After he said this, his significant symbolic and real action of going out of the temple, Matthew 24, 1, he actually went out of the temple. When he said, your house is now left to you empty of a divine inhabitant, he, the divine inhabitant, left the temple. If only people would make that connection, that it is only then that he gives the discourse called the Mount of Olives discourse, Matthew 24, which is falsely attributed to our future and should be attributed to the time in which the Hebrew writers were the Hebrew readers were anticipating the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So the prophetic prediction that he made in Matthew 24, 38 and or 23, 38 and 39 was followed by his speech act, his significant symbolic action of going out of the temple. So to actually perform the abandonment of the house of Jerusalem, that is the temple, Jesus went out from the temple complex. It's, it's then, of course, his disciples tried to get his attention and tried to kind of calm him down because he seemed to be a little agitated about things. But they said, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at this structure, specifically the temple. And Jesus said, you know what he said, not a stone will be left upon a stone of these buildings. So it's hard to avoid the A.D. 70 trajectory here. Please notice that Jesus' action, or what scholars like to call speech act, of leaving the temple was precisely aligned and synchronized with his oracle that Jerusalem's house was being left empty, desolate of a divine resident. The very famous and often misinterpreted Matthew 24 is directly linked to this action and to the upcoming divine judgment upcoming in their time on the temple, which was prefigured in Jesus' action of cleansing the temple, which he had done in Matthew 21, a couple chapters back. So when Jesus went out of the temple, what happened? The divine inhabitant or resident of Jerusalem's house was leaving. He would eventually be crucified outside the city gates. 
which is analogous to bearing the reproach of the cross outside the encampment. The PT's exhortation has to be seen to be happening in this light and in this time. In God's light, we see light. In Jesus' action of going outside of the temple, we see the action that needs to happen in the case of the readers and hearers of the Hebrews' homily. They, too, have to go out, if not symbolically out of what Jerusalem represents in her apostasy. They have to, if they live within those environments, actually get out of Dodge itself, leave the city. It's very interesting that Hebrews 13, 14 says, for here we have no continuing city. Here, as if the people are in Jerusalem. And that's the whole myth. Jerusalem was considered a city that would be eternal, just as Rome always was considered to be the eternal city. There are no eternal cities in this age. There's only one eternal city, and it's the city of Jerusalem above, where Christ is the great king, the city of the great king. And so, again, let me say this, because all of this, I think, is very important in our own generation and on the level of our own time. In the Jesus action of going outside of the temple, we see the action that needed to happen in the case of the readers, hearers of the Hebrews homily. If they're located, the readers that is, if they were located somewhere within the arc of Paul's missionary enterprise, then they're being urged to be brought out of a system whose headquarters in Jerusalem is in Jerusalem. If they're actually in Jerusalem, which is a possibility, then they're being urged to get out of that city, get out of Dodge. They're the very group who are being addressed in Revelation 18.4. And here's where Revelation congeals with Hebrews and why I'm glad we came to Hebrews via Revelation first. Revelation 18.4 says, Come out of her, come out from her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sinfulness or receive any of her plagues. They were being urged to leave the that which Revelation 18.10 calls the great city, Babylon. That is apostate Jerusalem. We went to a lot of trouble to reveal that Babylon in Revelation is apostate Jerusalem in collusion with Rome and not Rome the city itself. As the PT says in Hebrews 13.14, for here... And he uses that word emphatically. Here, we have no enduring city. We don't have an enduring city, an eternal city, a permanent city here in Jerusalem. Instead, we seek one to come. That's why they are urged, let's go outside the encampment, carrying Jesus' reproach, which is another way of saying bearing his cross, carrying in our bodies the dying of Jesus so that his life and livingness will be manifested in our mortal bodies. That comes right down to us now, 2 Corinthians 4, 10 to 11, because the camp that we go outside of to bear his reproach is not only the camp of a dominant social and cultural situation, 
but out of the camp of our own Adamic ontology and paleo man, the old man that we once were, the old person that we once were. So please note the conflation as we round the final corner in this message or the final bend in this particular increment. Please notice the conflation of Revelation and Hebrews. Come out of her, the so-called great city, my people, says Revelation, for here you have no enduring city, says Hebrews. Let me say it again. It's a conflation. Come out of her, that so-called great city Babylon, my people, for here you have no enduring city. What's that? It's a conflation of Revelation 18.4 and Hebrews 13.14. Insight into the A.D. 70 Ark of Coherence is essential to the interpretation of this passage of Scripture and of the passages that predict fiery judgment on apostates. This can be seen in a comparison of Hebrews 6.8 and 10.27, both of which refer to fire in terms of judgment. This can be compared with the fate of apostate Jerusalem as apocalyptically depicted again in Revelation 18.8, which says she will be consumed with fire because the Lord God who judges her is powerfully effective just like the word of God in Hebrews 4.12 is a judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I'm going to say it again. Insight into the biblical A.D. 70 Ark of Coherence. I said biblical A.D. 70 Ark of Coherence is essential for the interpretation of this passage of Scripture. I speak specifically of Hebrews 6, 1 through 8 and the passages that predict fiery judgment on apostates later on, like Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Conversely, the oversight of this insight has led to many false ideas and many false dogmas, including the assumption that the author is warning his readers about hell. So, Consider this now. We're get back to Hebrews 6.1. We're going to get into the minutia of it a little bit, but I also want to see the whole picture also. We'll go back and forth, Bob, and weave between the minutia and the macro picture here. So, so far we have in Hebrews 6.1, therefore leaving, and please notice my translation of this because it's intended to clarify, leaving the merely anticipative word about the Messiah. He's not asking them to leave the word of Messiah here, the word about Christ. How could he be? Colossians 3.16 says, let the word about Christ reside in your hearts completely, plentifully, and fully. Keep on having that. He's talking about the merely anticipated word of Messiah. The beginning here refers to the anticipative word of Messiah. There's our key word again, anticipative. Leaving or abandoning the beginning word of the Messiah, or the Christ, tontes arches tu Christu, logon. Tontes arches tu Christu, logon. That is, the beginning word of Christ, as it means literally, it means 
the anticipative, the merely anticipative word about Christ. Where do you find the merely anticipative word about Christ? In what we call the Old Testament. It means departing from the system also that has only the anticipative messianic doctrine. The reason these people are continuing under the priesthood and continuing to offer animal sacrifices is because the word of Christ that they possess is anticipative. They haven't seen him in Jesus. They haven't seen him having come in Jesus. So they're still anticipating the Christ. And so to leave the system that they represent and the animal sacrifices is to leave what? The merely anticipative word of Messiah. Do you see, I hope you do, the extraordinary light that's admitted through translating what is usually called elementary doctrine of Christ to anticipative word about Christ. Therefore, you don't get into the false territory of saying, well, the, the elementary word about Christ means the gospels and the teachings of Christ. No, they aren't part of a beginning word or an anticipative word. They're part of the word of fulfillment, including the word tetelestai in John 19.28 and 19.30. Gotcha. Leaving or abandoning the beginning word of Messiah or the Christ and that's in the Greek, tontes arcane tu Christu logon, means departing from the system that only has the anticipative messianic doctrine. That is, the predictions and foreshadowings of Messiah in the Old Testament oracles, and not the fulfillment as described in the gospel and in what Paul calls the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was silent until Jesus was manifested in the flesh, crucified and received into glory. That's Romans 16, 25 and 26. So it's important, more than you know, to recognize that what is called for here is a clean break from a tradition that God himself has abandoned. Just as an intellectual conversion consists of a clean break from thinking and reasoning like an infant or a toddler, so what is called for here is a clean break from the temple and the system of sacrifices connected with the stone temple in apostate Jerusalem as well as a clean break from its priesthood. Father, may your grace be with our spirit as we apprehend these things, comprehend these things, understand these things, and as their implications dawn on us, resulting in occupation with Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen.